Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. In each episode, I have someone sharing their story and advice on how to get into cybersecurity. And I'm very excited to have my friend Jeff Foley on today. Jeff Foley is the creator of the AMAS Project. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, we're going to get into that a little bit and you'll get to find out about what AMAS is if you don't know. But uh, welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Phils. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your, your busy schedule. So I know you recently started a new job and it sounds pretty exciting with uh, the things that you have coming up. Uh, so why don't you share about yourself, introduce yourself and tell our audience uh, about you and how you got started. Ah, yes. The introduction. Um, well, like you said, so currently I'm the, um, vice president for attack surface protection at zero Fox. I've had similar roles. I would call it at other companies such as Citibank. Uh, National Grid, North of Grumman. You know, it's been a while. I've, I've been doing this for about uh, 20 years. But uh, I I would say I had a, well, I like to think an interesting start to how I got in, involved in this area of work. Because when I went to university, I had really no idea that I'd end up in security. So, for me, it was, it was all about programming. It was about the internet. I mean, that's, that's what this meant to me back then was I was just fascinated with the internet. And with that, <clears throat> I wanted to be able to create capabilities or like tooling that could communicate across the world. Like that, that was my idea of success or what I was hoping I'd be able to do. It just happens to be that. That ended up getting me to security, which I, I can explain with uh, my story, I guess, or at least some of the highlights, which is that when I went to uh, university, I ended up getting a job with the IT department. I was a network administrator. <clears throat> so they had a, I guess you could say a lot of tedious tasks that they gave me just to make sure that students uh, maintain their access to the network and you know, weren't violating uh, reasonable use and things like that. But I, I automated all of my job. I mean, literally every single aspect of my job. And I guess I, I felt guilty. I felt like, wow, they're, they're paying me for this, but I'm not really doing anything anymore. So I went to my supervisor and I admitted this. And I said, do you have like something else I could take on or some other say policy we could enforce or some kind of monitoring maybe we could do so that I could uh, at least use my time that you're paying me to, to help you out. So he did come across a few um, 
like security policies that he was, um, he said, you know, we, we don't have tooling to enforce this. We don't have any way of monitoring if this is happening frequently. So have at it. You know, that was his attitude. It was like, if you have the time or you want to take a shot at it, go ahead. So I did, I automated the monitoring and detection of those violations or security policy violations. And it discovered that this was, these things were happening. <laughs> right. So th this got more serious. I mean, now, now we're talking about like students, uh, spying on other students, like watching their webcams and their dorm rooms and things like that. So it took this to a new level and, you know, people got expelled because of the, the, um, tooling that I brought to the university. So when that happened, when, when that, when things started going in that direction for me, where my network programming skills ended up being useful for security or IT security, people found out like the professors heard about it, I assume. Um, and they got me interviews with, uh, the air force research laboratory, a cyber excellence center specifically, uh, where they had the adversarial science laboratory. So I ended up accepting these interviews. I, you know, I was offered a position over there. I spent a, a lot of years doing cyber warfare research and development where we did, like I said, we did the applied research and we performed proof of concept, uh, tooling for these like next generation capabilities. So that was my start into this field was, it was, it was unexpected. It came from automation. I mean, that's, that's, I would say that's literally what got me here is I automated things related to security. And then it kind of pushed me in this direction, which grew on me quickly because let's face it, it, it was fun. So what kind of made you think to automate these? Did you, was there, what specifically inspired you to automate these tasks? I don't know if people love my answer or hate my answer, but it's like, it was laziness. I mean, it, it was just, it was just the desire to be able to say, why should I keep typing these things? I don't have to do this. I can get a machine to do it for me. I, I just didn't want to have to do it. I, I, I felt like my time was better spent typing the code to create the automation than to do the data entry that was my alternative, you know? So that, that was my reason. That, that's pretty interesting too, because that was kind of like really before, before PowerShell and people got into a lot of this automating administrative tasks. I mean, you probably had some Unix administrators back then doing some scripts to automate some things. I remember back in my sysadmin days, uh, my favorite script I created is I worked for a mortgage company. And every one of these loan officers had their own website and their, their own domain name. So we kept having to create these records for, for their, their websites. And so learning from one of the Oracle DBAs, he had a script that he created a FTP script that would FTP files. And I took that and created a, a batch file that would create these records. So these DNS records. So I just upload them to the, to the Linux server. That was kind of one of my things I did to automate something. Nice. Well, it always feels good, right? To automate something. I mean, cause now you can say, okay, I, I learned what I had to learn to understand this well enough 
to the, to be able to automate it. But now that it's automated, I don't have to do it anymore. So you, you kind of get, you get that good feeling like, well, I, I learned, you know, the, I have the understanding now, but I don't have to burden myself with the work. Feels like a win-win, I guess. Cause I always enjoyed yeah, so learning the technology, right? I mean, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't trying to back away from that, but, um, it just felt good to be taking a better advantage of the technology than to become, um, you know, to, to be serving the technology, I guess is a way to look at it. So when you're, whenever you're doing this automation, when you first start out, you're using like batch files or any specific, uh, scripting language. Actually, when, when I was doing this, I used C. <clears throat> oh, wow. I think it's a mixture of, it's because that's what I learned originally in, uh, in my university courses, but it also was kind of appropriate for the systems and network programming that I was doing. A lot of these libraries that I needed were, they were all C libraries. So not all of them had support in scripting languages. So it, from my perspective, it was just easier to do it this way because I was more comfortable with it and there seemed to be more support for it. So no, knowing about your, your project, so when did you kind of make the jump from C to, to Golang? Uh, as soon as they released it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Go was such a, a gift, I mean, a long overdue and needed gift, you know, it was like, because I mean, that's what Go is in my opinion. It, it is, it's the next gen C where or you could say the next generation systems and network programming language. And when they released the specification, I remember myself and a couple of colleagues, we were sitting there reading every word of thinking we cannot wait to put our hands on this because they had all the modern features as well. I mean, C was very dated, right? Like it, it was missing a lot of things uh, by the time go came out and we were ready to have something more modernized. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing how it's been really widely accepted in the offensive security community as well, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not sure I can explain why exactly that happened. Um, other than that, it's great language. It's a lot of fun to use it. But I don't know if there's some overpowering reason why I would say you have to use uh, Go instead of whatever other language uh you enjoy using, but it is, I mean, it is designed clearly to do system and network programming, which a lot of security tools need those kinds of features or, you know, access to, to those things. So, you know, probably just suits, um, the need well for the use case. What, one of the advantages I can see from it is creating portable executables, because before, if you're using Python and say, you're going to use this exploit or this script on a windows server and it res wasn't running Python, then you have to use like Py to exe to make an executable. So that's one of the things I liked about go some of the go tools is be able to create that file and go not have to be running on that server, create the executable. And, and so I think that's kind of, kind of it. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that really kept me kind of interested in seeing what you were doing. And also we had some people in our local community that, that create a C2, a command and control, tool which they've written in all all go which 
you know, they had pretty experience with it. These were people that were doing stuff in Python before. So that kind of got me interested. Yeah. And, and, you know, you make a great point. You're absolutely right. And also, I mean, that problem existed with C. Um, so the, you, the typical situation when you compiled your C program was it still required shared libraries, right? Which created dependencies on the system, right? So if you brought your C program over to a similar machine, but it didn't have those shared libraries installed, it wasn't going to run. But like you said, uh, now with the static linking being the default for Go, you build it. And as long as you move it over to a machine uh, with the same architecture, same OS, it's going to run. I mean, it's beautiful. And the cross compilation is really easy. So I've, for instance, been able to build something on a regular development box and then cross compile it for like an Android phone. And what you get is, like you said, it's just one executable file. You bring it over there and it's going to run. It's, it's beautiful. There's no need to set up the environment on the target system. Yeah, kind of speak, speaking ago, so uh, whenever you originally, because I'm not sure the history of Amass, so if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing about your Amass project and kind of the history of that, I was just kind of curious if it was always in Go or it just eventually got moved over, rewritten in Go, or how did that? So, yeah, <clears throat> the, we like I said, we started using Go as soon as we could. So. This brings us back to like 2010 or something, I think is, well, I mean, it was the announcement I think came out in 2009, but I, I'm pretty sure the first time we received funding from a, for professional work that allowed us to use Go as a part of the solution, it was around 2010 or 2011. And we just got used to using it. We loved it. Right. So by the time a mass came into the picture, which was more around like 2016 or 17, I was already just so comfortable using it that it, it was, it felt more like the obvious choice or the preferred choice. But there are some things about the Amass project that do come from other aspects of my history, creating um, these information security tools or solutions. So Users of a mass would notice uh, there's uh, there's a, a Lua engine embedded in. It. Excuse me, I have uh, friends barking in the background. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a Lua engine, and a lot of the implementation for the OSINT capabilities of a mass are written in the scripting language, not Go. Right. And some people, you know, perhaps would say, well, why, why did you do this? Or, you know, if you like Go so much, why, why are so many of these important, uh, say implementations or integrations written in Lua? So it, it goes back to, well, first of all, there's other security tools that have done the same thing, right? Like Nmap, Snore, Wireshark. All of them also have Lua scripting engines built in. Um, and they have similar stories, you could say, where a lot of functionality is written in these scripts that are 
optional to use it with the tools. <clears throat> and back when I was still using C, uh, we had kind of adopted this design choice or whatever, where it was convenient to be able to embed the Lua scripting engine and then build uh, like plugins off of that, right? And make it so that you had this, say, engine or framework that was written in C and it was high performance and things like that. And then the additions could be quickly uh, whipped up and the C program could uh, take accept new ones every time it ran <clears throat> without having to completely rebuild the the engine or the core. So that's just something I kind of got used to doing. And then when the Amass project needed the ability to expand quickly uh, and make it easy for users to expand it, it just seemed like an obvious way to, to handle it or at least something I was comfortable with. So I added the Lua engine to it. But yeah, you said tell you about the, the project. So uh, so that's why we used Go, but um, the project itself was created because around that time, like I said, 2016 or 17, I was working with a lot of clients that wanted me to pr help them choose what to do about their security posture, right? Specifically external security posture. And I was attending these meetings and man many times I would say, well, do you do you have like inventory information you can share so we can see what's out there, uh, what, what exposure the company has, what security controls are in place, you know, things like that. And all too often the answer was, well, no, or I'm not sure if it's complete or it might take a long time to get the information. And it left the conversations kind of boring, honestly, or like not getting anywhere because we didn't have data to drive decisions. So I changed that by coming to the meetings equipped with information about what I could find about the client on the internet. And so this was great, but it was kind of time consuming because I was doing this by hand originally. And at some point, similar to my story about the university, you know, I just kind of said, I am not going to sit here and keep typing all night long. You know, I'd rather write the code to do it for me, you know, same old story. So. I did. I, I wrote myself a program to do this in the background so I could then, you know, go back to my, say, regular life. And in the morning, I'd get up and there would be all my data about the client and then go to the meeting. So that worked uh, quite well. And then I ended up showing it to a couple people, you know, outside of just these meetings. I mean, the people at the meetings were definitely appreciative of the, the, the data, but also I showed some other people this and they just said, wow, this is far more comprehensive than what other open source tools that try to do this. You know, it's, this data is better, you know, more or better than what we're getting from these other tools. You should share this or you know, let other people use it. And since I didn't design this, or I, I wasn't building this to like start a company or, you know, or keep this the cards close or anything like that. I just said, yeah, if you think people would get use out of this, sure, let's, uh, let's make it available. So, I mean, that's kind of the, perhaps once again, boring, uh, backstory to that is that it was, it was created more out of necessity and then other people saying, wow, we would really benefit from having that as well, but not because I had some amazing grand idea that, 
one day I woke up and just realized I'm going to make an open source project. Um, yeah. And, and once I released it, uh, a couple pretty important things happened, right? So for the big one, I, I always make sure to give credit to, um, HD Moore because he seemed to quickly notice when I released it and, uh, told people about it and said, you should check this out. And that definitely got a lot of people to take a look at it. Uh, and, and I think they seem to agree that it was quite helpful, but it created, um, quickly created like a community of users around this, right. Who provided really great feedback about what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, or what they would love to see added to it, things like that. And it really, you know, I've told people for years now, it was that community, I think that has caused it to stay what it is today. It's, it wasn't just me or, or because I did something, you know, other people couldn't have done. It's, it's, it's more about all the people using it. It's all the, the feedback that we receive. It's, it's the community and that's what keeps it, keeps it alive or keeps it going. Long story, very, I guess. Very cool. No, good, good story. Good to hear the, to the background. Good for listeners to, to hear that. And one of the questions I typically ask is, do people need to know how to code to get started in cybersecurity? So. I know you're going to be a big proponent of coding, but what are your views as far as someone that's a beginner just trying to break in? Yeah, interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I, I also teach um, at, in a cybersecurity, you know, university program, both the undergrad and graduate. And I don't think I would actually say to anyone, you have to code to be in this field. Like I, that, I would definitely not say that um i also don't think though i would say to anyone don't because you don't need it <laughs> right i i don't think i would say don't uh i wouldn't steer anyone away from it i wouldn't tell someone that they're not going to make it without it i think it's a really great skill to have um you can see from my own stories it's really kind of helped me it's made it so that i could uh make tasks easier uh, it allowed me to codify my understanding of things and, and then honestly kind of forget about it and go on to something else, but still have the, uh, powerful tooling at my disposal. I mean, I think also maybe it just feels good to know if you come up with an idea for something you want to be able to do, but there isn't an existing tool that does that. It's really nice to know it's not a problem. You can do it yourself, right? Like instead of feeling like you're at the mercy of other people and what they've created for you, you can just say, well, those tools are great and I'll use them when I can, but if there isn't one, well, then I'll make my own. So, you know, roll your own. I mean, I, I like the, the freedom that comes with that or the empowerment, maybe is the right word. So I do think it's a great skill to have. I do encourage people to learn to program. I also don't think it's really all that hard. You know, I think I think maybe people make try to convince themselves that they can't handle it or it's too hard for them. Eh, I don't think so. If you if you can learn security, I would say I imagine you can learn how to write. You, know, you can do programming as well. Of course, there's always more to learn, right? So it goes on your to do list, and hopefully you can get around to it. But 
I wouldn't say, I, I don't think anyone should be telling themselves, well, I can't handle that. I don't know. Does that answer, so first, answer your question? Yeah. Good, good, good answer. I mean, interesting to, to hear your point of view on that. So what if, some, if someone's wanting to learn how to code, how would you recommend it? Because I mean, there's all these different resources that people could learn in college. You have these Udemy courses, you have Code Academy, all these other places where you can learn to code. What, how would you re- recommend someone go about learning? Mm, that's a great question. Maybe when I specifically put it towards Go, it's a good language for folks to learn. So someone wanted to learn Go, how would you recommend them learn Go? I mean, like you said, these days, there's so many great ways, so many options, right? I mean, when I was younger, there weren't that many choices. You, you either you either took a course or grabbed a good book or just tried tried it, right? Like there was very, a lot of times, poor documentation for things. These days, there's, there's videos and like you said, all these um like online courses and, and different options. So I don't know if I'm against any option. I, I guess I would be inclined to say whatever one you feel works really well for you, maybe stick with it and, fu- you know, find a course or, or a material for go from the source that you enjoy learning from. But personally, I mean, I just like to read books. I mean, there's some really great go books available. I like buying a good book and just soaking it up. I mean, I think once you are reading, then of course the next best thing you can possibly do is start writing the code. I mean, that's how you learn anything, right? Just put your hands on it. So find, find a way that you can absorb the information, whether that's reading or, you know, these online courses, and then just start writing the code and feeling what it's like to try to do it. Yeah, very very interesting. I know for for me, I've got to do some hands-on related stuff too. And a good friend of mine and former coworker, always his recommendation was always to, you know, find a book where you actually have to write the code and start doing something. If you're just reading the book or just going through courses, sometimes it just doesn't really stick. Like getting in there and just playing around with the code. Yeah, agreed. It can get boring. I mean, for instance, actually, I have one of my favorite books about go right over here next to me because i i can't remember the last time i had to read it but i feel like i just enjoy reading it so it's this book here called uh go brain teasers it's only i think 80 something pages long but i can tell you why this is one of my favorites because every couple of pages of this book is filled with sorry hold on a second Yeah, so every every so many uh, pages of this book is something you can do wrong in Go, and then they show so they they show you the code, they dare you to try to find what's wrong with it, then they show you what happens if you run it, and then they go through explaining what was wrong with it, what why it works this way, and how to make sure you don't make that mistake. Right, and the reason I love that so much is. You know, I'm kind of a firm believer that you learn from mistakes, right? I mean, that's how you learn to get good at something is by being bad at it. And <laughs> well, you either learn from someone who's gone through this before and can save you the trouble, I suppose, 
or you have to do it wrong to get it right. I mean, it's kind of how it works. So I like this book because I wish there were more like it because that's what they, their whole point is. They're trying to say, let us show you all the pitfalls and we'll explain to you why they are what they are, how they work or why, why it's this way so that you hopefully never do this yourself. Sounds like an interesting book. Well, I think if more books were written that way, it could be quite useful or had a section of the book designed like Mm -hmm. that, where it said, well, so we've told you about this, but let's tell you what you don't want to be doing with it. Yeah. So, so based on your, your background and experience of how you got started. So someone, and you've worked with numerous people, you know, teaching at the university. So what would you recommend for someone that's wanting to get into cybersecurity? How would you recommend them learn and get into the field? That's a good question too, because I would also say, do you mean from the angle of what's going to help them get a job or, or help them learn these, you know, this occupation? Because unfortunately, I'm not sure I would argue that they're always the same thing. Yeah, I would say both of those. How would you recommend to educate and then, you know, to learn the skills and, and how to get the job? Well, I'll start with learning, actually learning information security. I think one thing that I hear people trying to do, you know, I, I hear this both on like social media and in, in, in the university is, you know, people are trying to quickly jump into information security. And so I didn't do that, right? I already said how I started as a computer science student. And I kind of was steered in the direction of InfoSec. But I, I feel like one of the reasons it, it was such a pleasant experience for me was that I had the foundation of, I knew how computers worked and I knew how networks worked. Cause that's, a, that's what I, that's how I focused my uh, four year degree was I was a computer science student, but I, I, in the places where I could control what courses I was taking, well, it was, it was a mixture of what university I chose to go to and what their program was like and what I chose to take, uh, for courses. But I focused on operating systems on uh, distributed systems and telecommunications. So when I came out, you know, I was very familiar with how these systems worked, how the networks worked, and then how to write code to communicate over the networks. I also along the way managed to learn quite a bit about database, uh, management systems, which really came in handy. But if you just try to jump right into security and, and you don't know a lot about these underlying systems, I don't know how well I would have done if I tried doing that, you know, like that, that would have been really rough, but I heard lots of people trying to do that where they're just trying to like race to the finish line, so to speak without the foundation underneath them. And then you hear all the trouble they're having because they're unfamiliar with these systems that they're trying to secure. And I don't know. I just don't know if I, if I would recommend that. And like I said, if I had to try to do that, I think I'd be intimidated maybe because it it would be tough. 
Whereas by starting with the foundation and then jump, you know, then going into security, it made it seem more like something fun to do. Yeah, that was kind of kind of my path too. I was a sysadmin and then found out about security and got into it. It's kind of interesting because a lot of people that got in around the time we did, you know, back when I got in, was working in IT. They're not not all companies had a secure security team. You know, their network guys managed the firewalls. There wasn't a dedicated security team, and really didn't even know of the job until I'd been a sysadmin for a while, and then just kind of got interested in that and moved to that area. So it's interesting that, you know, we had those kind of backgrounds and then getting into security wasn't as difficult because you figure if you've got to install some kind of software, you know, if you had to install a firewall or something, if it wasn't an appliance, if you don't understand operating systems and networking, that's going to be a pretty difficult task if you start having problems, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, some of these cybersecurity students, when I ask them like what their favorite Linux distro is, they'll tell me they've never used Linux. And at that point, that's probably when my mouth, you know, my jaw drops or whatever. <laughs> like, wow, I mean, I'm not sure what to say at that point. So, yeah, but that's the situation that some of these students are in, I think. And I just, I wouldn't recommend trying to there's no way to, to cheat this, I would say. You know, there's no, if you, if you want to be good at security, you have to start, I think, by being good with these machines. I mean, that's what it boils down to is you have to understand the, the world that you're trying to secure. Once you are familiar with, with those things, then, then this all feels more like entertainment. Or at least that's what it's felt like for me for 20 years is this has just been a fun ride, but. <clears throat> But if I had to try going in the other way, I think it would, it would probably be very stressful. The other thing too, is like you said, back in those days, um, lots of people didn't have security people, right? So it was, it was often, or it was common that, um, people just kind of got pushed into this, right? Like you showed someone that you could handle it and they're like, oh, well, you seem good at this. So you should be the one to do it. Right. It wasn't so structured and formalized like it is today. Um, so yeah, it felt haphazard or by luck, I guess that you managed to find yourself in this with that opportunity or, you know, chance to do it. But nowadays, if, if you're coming out of school and then your goal is I want to land in a security position, again, I would say that that could be tough because what track record or, or, how experienced do you have to show that you know how to do this other than your degree? <clears throat> of course, there's the, there's the topic of like, you could go get certs and things like that, but that's an interesting topic in itself about what that really shows or doesn't show about your ability. Um, the other thing too, is <clears throat> staying on the topic of, um, employers or like, how do, how do you get the job? I think one thing that I've seen this happen for years and years, and I, I think this is good advice to share. People, people in technical positions should remember that oftentimes the people that are hiring you do not understand this like you do. That, that's like the most important thing I think you could keep at the front of your mind when you're dealing with these people is 
the chances that they're going to appreciate what you appreciate about this is not likely because right like they're they're not going to know what these things are that you're automating or or how these systems work they're looking at all this from the perspective of why do why does this company need this and if we get the right person for this position what will it do for this company so when you're trying to get the job i would argue you need to change the way you're used to thinking about things and present yourself as this is why choosing me will be the best choice for this company not because i'm awesome with technology or because i love this or i love these technical things that they don't understand i mean but that's what happens right as you get so engulfed in all this technology and the way these things work that you're quick to assume i think that that's how you should present yourself to a manager and if your manager doesn't come from a background like yours you could be telling them a lot that they have you know where they, they're just sitting there they have no idea what you're saying and it, and they're not even sure if you're the right person because yeah i think because they, they have nothing to relate to and that's why a lot of times they're left with nothing but your credentials to go on like well they, they, i don't really know what they were talking about but I see they have the right certifications or they have, you know, they have a good degree, so they probably know what they're doing, right? But if you know how to speak their language a little bit better, or you take some time to, to learn what their objectives are and present yourself as I'm very comfortable with this, I know what, how to do this, and I can deliver what you need for your company. Now you're speaking their language and you're, I think you're more likely to get hired. So that's why earlier I said, which one are we talking about? Actually learning it or getting the job because because i think what you need to be focused on to learn it are all these super technical things that only other people like us are going to probably be able to appreciate if you're trying to pitch yourself as the right person for the position i think you need to be aware of what that company needs and how are you going to present yourself as the right person to do that for them Yeah, those are some good points and, and being able to describe that to people who don't understand that area so well, because if they see that you're able to communicate that, there's a lot of times you may be having to pitch something to management and if they don't understand it, if you're able to relay that to them in terms they understand, it's going to go, go a long ways. Yeah, like as a, as a simple example, of course, this isn't about getting a job really, but it does relate to appealing to people that are not technical if i were to go up to one of these people and the, the goal was sell them on the idea that they should use a mass right so do i go up them up to these people and say a mass has over you know i don't even know the number anymore but 80 to 100 data sources that it uses you know to uh get a more comprehensive picture for your exposure on the internet do i say that you know and, and try to show the level of visibility that we can provide <clears throat> or do i instead focus on what their company could be not doing right now what gap that creates within their security program and how my tool and my familiarity with it now can fill that gap for them because 
if I tell, tell them about the data sources, that person could be stand, uh, standing there listening to me, thinking to themselves, well, I don't know, is 80 to 100 a good number or is that a terrible number? I don't know. I've never used one of these tools before. I have no idea what alternative tools can do. Um, but if you instead don't focus on your tool, focus on what is it they don't have right now that could be a problem for their security program and how are you uh, able to fill that or fix that for them? Now they're listening because they can appreciate that. They know what it, what, a, what the consequences could be for having these gaps. So that's what I mean is change your per the way you're delivering yourself so that you're not focused as much on you and what you've done or, over the years, but them and how you will help them. And I, I just think that approach always works so much better. Good, good advice. Makes sense. So we're getting down towards the end of the show. Is there anything that you'd like to, to mention that we haven't discussed? No, it's been a fun talk. Um, what else could I share with people? I mean, overall, I, I think if, if, if I was going to try to pick one thing for people trying to get into this field, I think it's really important to have confidence in yourself. You know, it's like, I hear, I hear about a lot of people that are wondering if they're good enough to do this or if they have what it takes or, or if they can be, you know, be competitive enough to get the, the gigs and things like that. Honestly, when I read a lot of these things, it just sounds almost silly because first of all, I would say, I don't think this is really that hard. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things out there that are much harder than this, but doing security work for a, I'll call it traditional security program of say a commercial company or enterprise company isn't really that hard. It's pretty straightforward. Um, so as long as you're willing to put in the, the hard work, as long, as long as you're just willing to apply yourself and learn what you need to, as you go, I would say you can probably do this and it means a lot, I think, to the people around you, though, if you present yourself as you do believe you can do it or you have, you know, you have confidence in yourself. So I, that would be my, I guess, last little piece of advice is I would say, if you're wondering whether this is for you or whether you can handle it or, or you know, I would just say, stop worrying about it. Just say, yes, I can do it. And believe in yourself and, and do it. And I think people would see good results come out of it. Very wise words. Uh, thanks for joining. It was great to have you on this episode. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you on the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.